and welcome to this week's Photographic Life. I'm not sure how many of you are aware of the importance of the publisher Condé Nast in the world of magazines. They publish GQ, Vanity Fair, Vogue, uh, Tatler, World of Interiors, uh, Architectural Digest, a whole load of different magazines globally. And there have been some changes over the last week, which are pretty seismic in the world of Condé Nast. And I'd like to suggest it's a real indicator of where photography is going, particularly editorial-based photography. So what's been happening? Well, Condé Nast editor-in-chief of Vogue, Germany, Spain and India, and Japan, I should say, a whole load of different people, they've all moved on in the last week. Dylan Jones, the long-standing editor-in-chief of British GQ, announced his departure. And word is that editor-in-chief Emmanuel Alt is set to leave Vogue Paris, as is Olivia Lalanne at GQ France and Joseph Goshen, editorial director of Vanity Fair France. Well, why does this matter to you, a photographer listening to a photography podcast? Well, the New York Post reported this... Media watchers are speculating that the Condé Nast magazine empire behind Vogue, New Yorker and Vanity Fair could soon be folded into the entertainment juggernaut Discovery Warner Media. A union between Condé Nast and the new Discovery Warner media outfit could make strategic sense given Condé's CEO Roger Lynch's push to develop more multimedia streams of revenue as print sales and advertising revenues drop. Condé Nast Entertainment, the magazine's video unit, develops podcasts, videos for YouTube as well as movies and scripted shows. What Condé Nast needs is scale and distribution, said Peter Kreisky, an investment advisor with Kreisky Media, and the new company will have many multi-stream operations. Condé Nast content would fit beautifully and uniquely into that portfolio. Don't forget that content's created by you, photographers and writers. There could be another reason for a sale, however, according to Thomas Meyer, author of the 2019 book on the new house, Condé Nast Empire, All That Glitters. He said this. The original new house, Sam Newhouse, built the company by buying up family-run newspapers that other families no longer wanted to own. By the time you get to the fourth generation, you have a lot of family members who don't work in the company, but who still want the money, said Mayor. The new houses might be at that stage. Kresge added it would be a victory lap in terms of a smart exit strategy for the family. However, Condé Nast is believed to be bleeding money and reportedly stopped paying the rent on its largely vacant HQ at One World Trade Centre earlier this year in an effort to renegotiate a smaller space with its landlord. Watch this space as publishing becomes broadcasting and the showcase that editorial publications once gave photographers merge, disappear and close. I warned about this in an earlier podcast because I kind of have my ear to the ground as far as publishing is concerned, and I hear a lot of stuff that's going on. This is really important for photography. We need to understand what's going on in the business that our clients are involved in. 
if we keep knocking on the door of a business which is in dire straits, it's not going to be any surprise if it doesn't get opened. Or if it does, they're not willing to give us any money for our photography. Just like publishing, photography's got to look and photographers have got to look for new places to tell stories visually and to exist in. As regular listeners know, I started up this podcast with the idea of it being an arm around the shoulder for those photographers who are perhaps finding it a little difficult in the trying times of being a professional photographer in the 21st century. And that was pre-COVID. Well, I'd like to bring to your attention something that I think might help. If you listen to the podcast, which of course you do, then you'll know the music that begins and ends it. And that was created and is played by Laura Ritchie, a professor of teaching and learning at the University of Chichester in West Sussex. Laura also created the music uh, for our Bill J film. So I've got a, a long term kind of collaborative working relationship with Laura. Well, she's just given a TED talk at UCLA, a via online, I should say. It starts with an incredible film of her playing her cello in uh, on a barge in the middle of a, a lake or perhaps uh, the uh, English Channel just off where she lives there in uh, Chichester. Anyway, I'm not sure where. But the talk was titled, Yes, I Can, that used the positive power of self-efficacy. So the film that she's created is available on YouTube, and the link for that is uh, on the unitednationsofphotography.com website, where you might be listening to this podcast from. If not, get over there and find it. Laura says, what does it mean to have agency, and where does this come from? As I said, she's an academic researcher and a musician, and Laura demonstrates in the film how self-efficacy and taking charge of your thinking are key ingredients to enacting your agency. Agency means doing stuff. As I said, Laura is a professor, and she's vibrant in her teaching, research, and music-making, and in life, and you'll see that in the film. She's incredibly positive and really kind of in your face when trying to get you to understand what she's saying, but in an extremely nice way. Her enthusiasm is contagious, and it inspires people to realise their goals through positive achievement and reach beyond their dreams. I think you really need to check out the this film. I know I'm certainly going to be using it in future teaching. This week, we welcome to the podcast to explain to us what photography means to him, Jeremy Nickel. Jeremy was born in Northern Ireland in 1957 and was inspired to become a photographer by a combination of his school's library's collection of picture post magazines and seeing the news coverage surrounding his teenage years during the Troubles in 1970s Northern Ireland, printed in newspapers, especially the Sunday Times and Observer. He began his career in London, rapidly gaining a reputation as one of the UK's leading news photographers. In 1986, he was invited to join a proposed new national newspaper, The Independent, becoming a core member of an award-winning editorial team. In 1989, he left the paper to concentrate on longer-term documentary photography, 
and since 1991 has specialised in reportage from across Russia and the former Soviet Union while taking time out to work on assignment photography and personal projects elsewhere. Nicole's work has appeared in a wide range of publications around the world and been shown at numerous international festivals and exhibitions. He's also won a number of awards, including World Press Photo and Interphoto, Russia's leading contest for professional photographers. In addition to his assignments for leading international publications, he is known for generating his own projects. Best known for classical photojournalism, in recent years Nicole has extended his interests to medium format portraiture and is now fully based in the Soviet Union. Whoa, tough question. I'm Jeremy Nicol, and in attempting to explain what photography means to me, I'll break this down and approach the question in parts. The first and least important part is that it pays the bills. Now I'll immediately add that that is both a blessing and a curse. And let me say that if you're listening to this thinking, yeah, I want to be a photographer, I advise you that photography, and especially my kind of photography, is a very inefficient way of paying those bills. Secondly, and far more importantly, photography is great therapy. And that's because of the third part. It's my way of communicating with the world. Without it, I literally wouldn't know what to do with myself. It gives my life meaning because when I find something that I feel people should know about, I photograph it and then try to get it published. Or share it in the parlance of our times. The subject doesn't have to be deadly serious because life isn't always deadly serious. And my approach doesn't necessarily have to be serious either. Sometimes a satirical or straight-out comedic approach works better. The key to it is that the subject has to speak to me. If it doesn't, I find it very difficult to simply push my buttons, go through the hoops and produce a satisfactory set of photographs. Many photographers can do that, of course. It's a very useful ability for a working pro photographer to have. So I have to admit that in that sense, I'm not a very good professional photographer. And the third part is that, despite it being a terrible cliche, photography can make a difference. Of course, some people like to dispute that. However, I can state unequivocally from my own experience that when the right people see the right photographs, that can cause them to take action that improves the lives of others. That doesn't happen all the time, of course and photographers who think it will are almost invariably disappointed. But that doesn't mean it never happens. And when it happens, even rarely, that is something to celebrate. To understand how I reached this relationship with photography, a little background may help. I bought my first camera, a Kodak Instamatic, with some money I'd been given for my eighth birthday. I immediately started behaving badly. I recall my mother on holiday protesting to me that she was not ready when I photographed her prepping for the camera at the beach. But it's better when you're not ready, was my reply. And I'm very happy that the first time I got in trouble with the camera in Russia was as a 13-year-old when I lay on the floor of a Leningrad museum and pointed my Instamatic at the ceiling. I didn't speak Russian, but I understood exactly what the Babushka museum guard was telling me as she grabbed me by the collar. 
It's the only way to photograph the ceiling properly, I protested. But the key moments that set me on the road happened in my teens. At secondary school, the library had a collection of picture post magazines and I discovered Bert Hardy, Thurston Hopkins and Grace Robertson. Around the same time, I found the school darkroom, borrowed a spare key and unofficially rescheduled my maths and science classes to the darkroom and a back corner of the library where I couldn't be found. Meanwhile, outside school, it was all kicking off. The war we like to call the Troubles began in earnest, and suddenly my hometown was the centre of the biggest story in the world. From Hardy and Hopkins' old stories in Picture Post, I jumped to the likes of Don McCullen, Gilles Perez and Christelle Perkins in the Sunday Times and Observer. And this was happening right now, on my doorstep. So it's not surprising that when I realised that photography was what I needed to spend my life doing, I was very focused on a fairly narrow field of what is a very broad art form. Journalistic, reportage, documentary, however you want to define it, it's what I'm about and I don't think that will ever change. That photography has shaped my life and made me who I am today, for better or worse. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for your contribution this week. You caused me to grab a pencil and a piece of paper whilst I was listening to you there and frantically make notes, probably more notes than I've made listening to any previous podcast. It's funny, isn't it, how many coincidences, what I call the serendipity of chance, occur when you talk to photographers or you listen to them. My first camera was also the Kodak Instamatic. And I have to say, um, some of the great moments are in meeting those photographers that inspire you so much. And I'm very lucky to have met Bert Hardy, Thurston Hopkins and Grace Robertson and commissioned Chris Steele Perkins and Don McCallum. But I thought what was really interesting there was a number of elements, that idea of being a working photographer, which really ties in with what I was talking about at the beginning of this podcast about Conde Nast, because I commissioned Crystal Perkins and Don McCullen whilst at Conde Nast. So there's a real link there between what Jeremy was talking about and the idea of actually earning money as a photographer. It may seem like a very rarefied atmosphere of Vogue House, Condé Nast and those glamorous titles, but the reality is that throughout their history, they've given opportunities to many different photographers that you may be quite surprised to know about. William Klein shot fashion for Vogue, so did Robert Frank, and so did lots of other magazines uh, underneath the Condé Nast umbrella, commissioned portrait fashion and documentary photography. Where I was talking there about Condé Nast, you can just as easily apply what's going on there to other publications as newspapers. And, of course, uh, Jeremy talking about The Independent. We've actually had quite a few photographers from The Independent days. Nick Turpin and uh, Craig Easton come to mind immediately. And there is no doubt that that was a golden age of documentary photography. But, of course, it went. It closed. And we are informed and our lives are affected by the... Uh, success or the lack of success of the people that we choose to work with and we want to work with. 
Something else I thought which really did struck a note, actually, with me that Jeremy said, which I've been thinking for some while, um, but not really done very much about, is the lack of humour, the lack of light-heartedness sometimes in the kind of photography that I'm seeing. I'm seeing so much photography and so many photographers who are just so serious in everything they do, in their approach, in their practice, and in the final images that they make. Now, absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. However, light and shade is so important in life as it is in photography. And although Jeremy there was talking about people like Thurston Hopkins and Hardy and and even McCullen, although McCullen's work is invariably quite dark and, and at times very dark, there is humour to be found in all photography. And I don't think we should feel that just because humour comes into photography, that that photography is any less important or any less serious as image-making rather than serious in atmosphere, emotion and tone. So maybe this is a little bit of a call-out that we don't always need to see a portrait of someone looking miserable, staring straight at us, and we don't always have to wrap everything we do in this hyper-theoretical, serious kind of blanket to make the work of value. Elliot Erwitt is a great example there, I suppose, of being able to play in different areas. And I'm sure you will suggest your own photographers for whom that is the case. So in these dark times, and it's been a dark year for for sure, and it still is in many parts of the world, a little bit of humour, a little bit of light relief is something that perhaps we could aim towards. I'm certainly feeling a little bit more positive. I've got my second jab on the way, so that's good news. By the time you hear this podcast, I will have been fully vaccinated. It does feel as if things are getting slightly better. I'm hearing of a lot of photographers creating interesting work and getting involved in new projects. So it just leaves me to say, as every week, take care.